The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. We are continuing our study of what uh, has been called the scarlet thread, the thread of Christ throughout the uh, Old Testament, and hope you're enjoying our study. We've got a great, great guy this morning, and uh, as with most of these lessons that you've picked up bits and pieces of, or maybe even done a deep dive in your life, my challenge is teaching something you haven't heard before, or um, maybe have heard, but you didn't, have not quite seen it applied, so... This is actually a hard lesson for me. Uh, I love this guy. As I said last week, he's my favorite guy in uh, the book of Genesis, my favorite certainly of all the patriarchs, and certainly one of my favorite guys in all the Old Testament. And you'll see why as we go through it. But I want to say up front that we're not discussing the life of Jacob. If I were really going to teach him, it'd be a four or five week study because the 12 chapters of his life uh, have got a lot of New Testament application, a lot of deep theology. And uh, if you want to hear his life uh, on our website real early on, there's two lessons on him. I'm just focusing on his interactions with God with the second person of the Trinity, but I'll give you a little bit of background because you got to understand his emotional condition to understand why what God does is so significant. So on your outline, I've said that we're going to start in uh, chapter 28 of Genesis, sorry, uh, yeah, 28 of Genesis verse 10 uh, and go through 35 verse 12. But I'm going to do a little bit before and a little bit in the middle uh, and just kind of kind of weave in the story of uh, Jacob. Uh, in Hebrew, in Israel, he is Jacob. In Texas, he's Jacob. Jake. So I like Jake, and uh, that's how we all learned him, but he's Jacob. Uh, and it means trickster, tricky, because uh, that's what he was. He's a pathological liar in his youth, and uh, God has to break him badly. His brothers Esau, Harry, and uh, Genesis chapter 25 starts with the story of their lives, uh, and it's significant because even though they're twin brothers, even though they are uh, supernaturally ordained by God from uh, inception to be significant boys, uh, it is significant that uh, in the New Testament the Apostle Paul deals with these boys as an illustration for God's choosing of us to be in the kingdom. People were struggling with, well, why can I handle the fact that God chose me or somebody I love, but he didn't choose this other person who's just hardened heart and rejected him, and how do I deal with that? And Paul says, that's the way it's always been. And he take, goes back to Jacob and Esau, and he says, from inception, God chose Jacob. And we don't understand why. That's God's election, and then he applies that to us in the New Testament. But it's two significant boys that is important because of the conflict between them, the favoritism of the parents, and how that fragments this family. Mama loves Jake. Daddy loves Esau. 
and there's conflict. There's conflict over who's going to get the affection, who's going to get the inheritance. There's all kinds of scheming. There's the story about the soup that I've got up here where uh, you've got the issue about, you know, a blessing and then a, a curse, and it's just all kinds of tension. But what you've got to understand is that ultimately when it culminates in the giving of the birthright, when Jake and his mama deceive blind daddy into essentially giving the inheritance to the one that's not legally entitled to the inheritance, Jake thinks brother is going to kill him. So on your outline, the first two points I gave you on our background here is when we first encounter God and we first encounter Jake, he is scared to death. He has schemed with mama. Daddy knows he's been scammed. He's got the birthright. It is legally binding. His brother has been deprived of money and land and livestock and all kinds of good stuff. And he thinks my brother's going to kill me. And if somehow my brother doesn't kill me, my father's going to disown me. Essentially, he's thinking my inheritance, my blessing is now worthless. So it culminates in two things. Number one, anxiety. And I put it on your outline because in my dealings with people in the world today in 2017, I think these two points are the most debilitating psychological issues that people deal with today anxiety and depression. And Jake in our story is dealing with both of them. I did some research and getting ready for the class and the amount of medical treatment for anxiety and depression is unbelievable in North America. It is a multi, multi billion dollar medical industry. I learned this week surpassed only by cancer in the amount of money spent in medical consultation and medicine. It is unbelievable how much money is spent medically on anxiety and depression because people can't deal with it. Well, if you think your new experience in it, Jake in our story, going back to antiquity, has got it in spades. He's got anxiety to the point he can't function, and he's got depression to the point he wants to run away and just distance himself from the world that he's in. It's the equivalent of getting in bed and pulling the covers over your head because you can't function. And when he falls asleep on the dirt with literally nothing, he is so has so much anxiety and so much depression, he doesn't even have a pillow. He doesn't even have a tent. He doesn't even have a, you know, whatever... Uh, backpack to, or a sleeping bag to sleep on, he's basically laying on the dirt with a rock for his pillow. If you look down in chapter 28 of verse 10, we've got our story of him running after the scam and the hatred and the anxiety of death and the depression of rejection, and I've described it on your outline as the pit and he's got a dream. Let me read it to you, and then we'll talk about biblical dreams. He says in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba, where all this stuff went down in the prior chapter, and went towards Haran, meaning he went north. You could tell by the direction he can't go west, because that's water. Didn't go south to Egypt, because they're enemy. Can't go east into the desert. So when he goes north, he's essentially going home to granddad's land. You can assume by this, he says, 
I heard Grandpa talking about it. I'm basically going to go back to where he lived, which is a land of pagans. So it's almost like he's running from God at this point. Verse 11, he reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He's all by himself. He took one of the stones from that place to put it there at his head and lay down in that place. That's pretty desperate when a rock is better than your arm in order to put under your head and go to sleep. Verse 12, And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven, and God's angels were going up and down on it. Yahweh, the Lord, was standing there beside him. Let me stop there. On your outline, I made a note on biblical dreams. What you've got to understand is in the Old Testament, before there was written scripture, God regularly communicated through dreams. If somebody says to me, God spoke into a dream biblically, I cannot categorically say, no, he didn't. But I will say, now that we have a Bible, it is not normative. It is not normative to say, God communicates with me through dreams. If someone says God communicates with me through dreams, the test is not what they say God said. The test is, does it comport 100% with what's in Scripture? And if it doesn't, it's not of God. So that's the test. So just because you have a dream and you think God's talking to you, you cannot assume that's accurate because God does not normatively speak to us through dreams. He speaks to us through his word, through the life of Jesus Christ throughout all of scripture, and that's how God communicates. Scripture says that. 2,000 years of Christian history says that, uh, and so you can't look at the Old Testament and say, Jacob had a dream, I had a dream, now I'm going to go do something stupid or I've got some weird theological view. The test is, does it comport with Scripture? Well, Jake doesn't have that, so God comes to him in a dream. Now, there's a message from Yahweh. Look what he says in verse 13. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. The Elohim, the God of your father, of Abraham, the Elohim, the God of Isaac, I will give you your offspring, the land that you're now sleeping in. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out towards the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow, that's pretty significant. Three things that jump out. Number one, sounds familiar, right? What does that sound like? Last week, the Abrahamic covenant. That's exactly what he promised Abraham. That's exactly what he promised to his daddy Isaac. It's exactly what he's promising to him. So he says, I will give you and your offspring this land, and they're going to be like the dust. You're going to spread out like the stars in the sky. It's kind of the analogy to Abraham. And everybody's going to be blessing, uh, going to be blessed because of you. So that's the promise of the coming Messiah. So it's a repeat of land. It's a repeat of the covenant commitment. It's a repeat of massive uh, uh, explosion of, of people coming from him. And it's really, really significant that it's a repeat. It's a sounds familiar from the promise of Abraham, which inferentially tells us God's not changing. He's saying, I gave the same promise before. I'm giving the same promise to you. And he's saying, even if I didn't say this, I'm the God of your father. 
and the God of your grandfather, and you can count me on my word. Now, the second thing he says is, I'm with you, and I'll watch over you wherever you go. So the second point is personal protection. His anxiety is, Bubba is going to kill me. His depression is, Daddy has disowned me, and Mama can't talk to me anymore. God says, don't worry, idiot, I'm going to take care of you. Despite his foolishness, despite his sin, despite his pathological lying, God says, I'm still with you. Now, that's pretty fascinating because at this point in the story, he is, in my opinion, the second most despicable guy in the Old Testament. Cain, who murdered his brother, gets first billing. Jake is right behind him. He is the scumbag of scumbags at this point, and Yahweh comes to him and says, I am with you. Now, there's some fascinating issues here in terms of what that means in terms of his belief in the promise of the coming Messiah, how God could love him despite his sin, but it is so reassuring in light of us because so many times if we've got a big stumble, we think, oh, you know, God hates me. Oh, God doesn't love me anymore. And we just get so beat up in ourselves, which is a game that Satan plays, we lose the reality that just like with Jake, God has the same promise to us. I will not leave you. I will be with you. I will protect you. Now, he's not saying it's rosy from here on out. He's not saying you're going to get a cush job. He's not saying I'm not going to polish you and knock big hunks off you like a sculptor sculpting rock because the next couple of chapters, Uncle Laban is going to work a PhD of pathological lies on him and show him how painful living with a pathological liar is. And so God is not saying it's going to be health, it's going to be happiness, it's going to be everything you've ever dreamed of. He says, I am personally with you. I will protect you from all that stuff you're going through, and I will not leave you. The third thing he says is his promise at the very, very end about the future. A prophecy is our third point. I will bring you back. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. So the prophecy is essentially saying, I am present tense, going to be with you, and you can live your life knowing I'm a God that, unlike you, doesn't lie. And so God says to him and to us, you can count on my promises to the second of your death, and it's something that's pretty strong. So that's the message. Now, a couple of things we can draw out of these boys. I've given you some life lessons and some fill-in-the-blanks. And a couple of the life lessons we draw from this guy is that initially we don't draw near to God from knowledge. We draw by our despair. Despair is the fill-in-the-blank. We don't draw near to God from knowledge but through our despair. Think about the house he grew up in. Think about learning about God from granddaddy Abraham. Think about daddy Isaac telling you the story of going to that mountain and the sacrifice and seeing as an adult the second person of the Trinity face to face when you think you're about to lay down your life. Imagine what that home 
dinner table talk would have been like. It would have been incredible. So this guy had incredible amounts of firsthand knowledge of the creator of the universe and the savior of mankind, and he's still a scumbag pathological liar. He doesn't run to God. There's no reference of prayer. There's no reference to any reaction he's ever had with God in any of the prior verses. He's at the bottom point of life, and he still does not pray. He lays his head down on a rock, and there is not one even word of help to God. He goes to sleep, and God comes to him, knowing the prayer of his heart that never became the prayer of his mouth. So God, knowing the prayer of his heart in his despair, comes to us. So you think you can spend all the time in the world coming to class and studying your Bible? Those things are awesome. Please don't stop them. But the reality is when we're broken is when we are drawn the closest to God. Because otherwise, it's an academic exercise. When it's not an academic exercise, you're hanging on to God like you used to hang on to daddy or granddaddy's leg when you were three years old. Sitting on the foot, arms wrapped around it. He isn't going anywhere unless he's taking you with him. That's the image of Jake at this point in time. And it's going to get even stronger when he starts wrestling with him in 20 years. Second life lesson. When we feel alone, we are not. Alone is the fill in the blank. And at the point of despair, the greatest game Satan plays is no one cares about you. Everyone else condemns you and your sin and nobody gives a flip about you because you're not worth caring about. The imagery of the angels and the stairway to heaven that we see here is the picture of God working. And it's basically given us an image not of just the stairway, but the image of the angels going up and down, up and down, up and down, doing what God wanted them to do, what God's plan is on this earth. So the image that he sees of what we now call Jacob's Ladder, whether it's an escalator or a, a, a spiral staircase like I've got in my little picture up there, whatever it is, uh, he doesn't describe it, but he sees God working. So the point is, even when he feels alone, he's all by himself, head on a rock, sound asleep, no money, no people, no friends, no family, no nothing, God opens his eyes to the supernatural and he sees God in overdrive working to deal with everything around him. The peace that that must have created in the depth of his soul is truly hard to imagine. So the imagery that I've had since I started teaching this and learning about it 20 years ago has been if I find myself in a really, really bad place and I'm feeling alone or I'm feeling rejected by, you know, the legal community I'm in or something goofy like that. The imagery I've got is Jacob's Ladder. There's angels I can't see and they're going up and down, they're going up and down. And there's a whole bunch of them because there is a world going on that we cannot see. Just because you cannot see what God is doing all around you does not mean that God and the angels are not working overdrive to deal with the situation you're in and protect your next couple of steps. So it's a great piece of imagery here. Third point, life lesson. 
the place of our trials can become the place of our transformation. Transformation is the fill in the blank there, and I got that from what happens next in verse 17. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place is this. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in that morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. And he poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, or we'd say Bethel in Texas, though previously it was a city named Luz. Bethel means gate of God or gate of heaven. Gate of God's the best translation. And it's basically a place where he said, this is the place of my transformation. I would encourage you to think about places in the past, physical geographic spots that are significant to you. And that place ought to be a reminder to you of either a place of despair that God got you away from it or a place of transformation. For me in my life, uh, there's an old house in Waco that I had the privilege of living in when I was in law school. I was really, really poor in college and law school, and God worked an amazing miracle, and I was able to live rent-free in a pre-Civil War mansion on the banks of the Brazos River, just right down from the suspension bridge in Waco. Uh, no rent, no electricity, no phone. All I had to do was water the yard and for three hours on Saturday afternoon, three hours on Sunday afternoon, give people tours if they came through the house. Not a lot of people came through so I could read my law books all day and it was awesome. But every time I go to Waco for court or to see a friend or go to the law school or teach or something like that, I will make a point, even if it's just driving by to drive by the house, because that house to me is one of the Bethels in my life. Because I look at that house and I say, I cried out, God, I cannot afford law school. I don't get a law degree unless my rent is free. Okay? As a 21-year-old kid, that ain't happening very often. And I got a house for free for all of law school. That's my Bethel. So there's something in your life that's a Bethel where you went in with anxiety, you went in with depression, and you may not see it with 20-20 hindsight, but you look back at it, and it may be a house, it may be a park, it may be uh, a city. I don't know what it is for you. God's different with all of us. But I want you to look at that, and even if you're just thinking about it or you got the ability to go see it, when you see that again, just like Jacob, you say, that's my monument to God's faithfulness. And if you got the ability to tell somebody, you tell somebody, that's my monument to God's faithfulness. It may look like a spot in the road to you. It may look like an old beat up house to you, but that's my Bethel. So for Jacob, it was a place that was transformative. The significance here is the closeness of God in his transformation. Closeness is the key word here associated because of what it did to his perception of God, just like with me and my old house. Jake knew how great God was. You could not be the grandson of Abraham and you can't be the son of Isaac and not know God is great. What Jake did not know was God is intimately 
personal. Jake knew all about the God of Grandpa and the God of Daddy. This was his realization that he's the God of me too. The God of Jake is what makes this transformative. The closeness that he now had a personal relationship with the second person of the Trinity is what transformed his life. Because at that prior to this, it's all head. After this, it's all heart. And so the final, final point in light of that is that the place of suffering can become the place of our worship. And we know it's worship because he took probably the only thing he was carrying, and that was oil. He says in verse 18, he poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel. So when he pours out oil, as he wakes up from his little vision, and he uh, is doing this, that's his act of worship. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's how we have to worship. Worship is not an act. It's something of the heart and mind. But it's something that God wants us to know as we deal with them. Now, there's a great little New Testament parallel here. Write down John 1, the Gospel of John 1, verses 45 and 51. Jesus is talking to of the first disciples called, and he uses this as an analogy. I've got it up on your screen for you. Sorry it's small, but i got to give you the whole story. Philip findeth, he found Nathanael, and said unto him, We found him of whom the Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you there. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Here's the key for you, 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believed. Thou, you shall see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is Jesus' reference to the historical reality of what I just read to you. Okay? So Jesus says, number one, without talking about it in detail, what happened to Jake is going to happen to you. The angels are working. They've never stopped working. And over the next couple of years you're going to sp spend with me, you're going to see supernatural that consists of angels going back and forth to heaven as I live my life. I put it in here for you, not only because Jesus shows us it's the historical reality of Genesis, but number two, because it's still true for us under the New Testament. If Jesus says his followers are going to see the angels working everywhere Jesus is, and if the essence of our salvation is Jesus is in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, what does that mean is going on around us in the New Testament today? Angels going up and down, up and down, up and down, doing everything. So you feel alone, you feel isolated, you feel anxiety, you feel depression. Old Testament and New Testament says stop it. The angels are all around you. You say, Chris, I don't believe in angels. I'm sorry, the Bible does. And if Jesus says it, then I believe it. 
And it's Jesus in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament saying, this is how I work. That is a great, great promise. Okay, let's jump. 20 years. I'm skipping the story of Uncle Laban. He goes to Uncle Laban, and he's got 20 years of misery. He says, Uncle Laban, can I work for you? Uncle Laban, I'm in love with your gorgeous daughter. And Uncle Laban says, I'll let you marry my daughter. He works for seven years, and at the end of seven years, he switches the brides. And one of the funniest verses in the Bible is he wakes up the next morning, and behold, it's the wrong one. It's the homely one, not the babe that he wanted to marry. And so Uncle Laban, being the good pagan that he is, says, well, I'll let you marry the other one too, but you got to work another seven years. So he didn't kill him. He wasn't mean to him. He's, he's being pruned of his deceit. So the background is that his uh, life is radically changed. He's learned as a deceiver what it means to live with a deceiver. And he comes out of it with two wives and a whole bunch of boys that are going to be the namesake of all the Jews that follow. We get Reuben, we get Simeon, we get Levi, we get Judah, we get Dan, Nephali, Gad, you know, all these guys, including Joseph, who we're going to study next week, and Benjamin, the baby brother. So all the boys are born, and he then says, it's time to go home. God gave me a promise. I got to go back. I got to face my big brother, my slightly older by just a minute brother, physically bigger brother, Esau, and the fear and the anxiety come back. The background of wrestling with God is him going back and putting himself in the same emotional place he was at Bethel. He hasn't seen daddy. He hasn't seen mama. He hasn't seen Esau. And he thinks one of them's going to kill me and the others are going to disown me if I live. And so there is fear like you can't imagine. I put at the top of your outline, Christ in our fear, because he was living in fear as he starts to head back from Uncle Laban's house back to where Esau and his family is. And he's scared to death. My brother is going to kill me. Now, if he's analytical about this, if he thinks about Bethel, when the second person of the Trinity makes him a promise, is this a rational fear? Right? God says he's going to take care of him. He's not going to be killed by his brother if he thinks about it. One of the most profound things I ever heard in a pulpit was what Pastor Greg said. Now it's been over a year ago, but Greg was preaching on fear. And Greg gave the greatest definition of fear I've ever heard in my life. And Greg said, and I agree with, fear is imagining a future without God. Best definition of fear I've ever heard of. It's imagining a future without God. And I think of my own life and fear of, you know, going into court and something bad happened to me. Fear of dealing with somebody that I've got a personality conflict with. Dealing with somebody where, uh, or dealing with a situation where I'm out of money or whatever it may be. That fear is assuming God doesn't know, God doesn't care, and God's not going to intervene. 
So fear is imagining a future without God, and that is exactly where Jake is at this point as he's going back to see Esau thinking, I'm going to die. He's imagining a future without God, and that is totally inappropriate. So here we get our wonderful story of his personal interaction with the living God. Now, look at verse, uh, sorry, chapter 32, verse 11. Chapter 32, verse 11, everything I just, the, the chapters I just covered are all about crazy Uncle Laban. And here, he has learned to pray. 32, 11, he prays. And he says, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come back and attack me, the mothers and their children. You've said, I will cause you to prosper. I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which cannot be uh, counted. That is an A+. Plus. On the eve of going to see a brother Esau, he remembers the promise. He says, I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm still scared to death, but I'm praying to you that you're a God of your word because this is what you told me yourself. Jump down to verse 24 of chapter 32. Verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So it's in the middle of the dark. He's sitting by himself, fretting, praying, worrying, fearful, and this guy shows up and starts to wrestle with him. It's crazy. Verse 25. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip as they wrestled and dislocated the hip socket. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me, which is an indication Jacob knew who he was wrestling with. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Here's the key verse, verse 30. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping on his hip. Now, there's some really good things in there. Let me break that down a little bit. The first one is it starts describing a man, not a spirit, not an angel to him. It's a man that he can put his hands on, and it says at the end, I saw him face to face. I put my hand on him. There's some other Old Testament perspective on this. Write down Hosea 12.4. Hosea 12.4 says, describing this event, yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. That's one verse essentially describing the whole life of Jake, but the key phrase is how he describes him the angel. Remember what I talked to you about last week? I introduced the angel of the Lord. 
It's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. And when the prophet Hosea is doing a historical review for his audience, he doesn't say wrestled with the an angel. He says the angel. So this tells us the angel of the Lord is a man. It is God and it is man. Because he says, I saw God face to face. So it's clearly God. It's 100% God. But it starts by saying, I wrestled all night long with a man. So the reader of the Old Testament say, how can you have all man that wrestles with a human being and how can you have all God that can bless me and do incredible things to me in the universe? Well, the true explanation doesn't happen till Bethlehem. But we know he encountered the second person of the Trinity. Hosea tells us it's the angel, the angel of the Lord. And we know from Jake's experience, it's a man who is the angel of the Lord. So it can only be one person. It's the second person, the Trinity. It is a theophany, as I put on your outline, a Christophany of Christ on earth before Bethlehem. Now, I also put on your outline what he goes through, and that is the breaking of a man, because he had to be broken. Think for a minute about why the creator of the universe couldn't just, in a nanosecond, end the wrestling. He could. So why let this guy go all night long doing the equivalent of putting your head on his forehead and just having the guy swing and swing and swing into the air, right? It's futility. Nothing's happening. They're locked, as kind of my, my picture describes here, but it's kind of I, the imagery of me is God just playing with him like an infant, and yet Jake is fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. A couple of points here. Our first life lesson is, our first life lesson here is, for God to use us, we have to surrender. Surrender is the first fill in the blank here. And the reason the fight goes all night long has nothing to do with God. God could have ended it in a nanosecond. What does God want? God wants him to surrender and say, I give it all to you. It's the exact same point we studied last week with Daddy Abraham, right? God just wanted him to surrender his most prized thing. His son, God said, all I want is your surrender, then I'm going to bless your socks off. Totally different with Jake. Jake's got a baker's dozen of boys, and he says, what I want you to surrender is your stubborn will. I want you to yield your soul to me. He's basically, by the end of the fight, hanging on to Jesus, hanging on to God, rather than fighting with him. And we see that at the end because it basically says, you're not letting me go. Jake says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. So our second little life lesson here is, if we don't surrender, God has no choice but to lovingly hurt us. If we don't surrender, God is not going to say, I have chose you, but I must have apparently made a mistake. I'll go to plan B. 
when you are chosen by God, you and I are not going away. There is no theological option of God choosing you and you saying, eh, I'll pass, I got something else to do. Scripture describes it as unbreakable. If God chooses you, he's got you for eternity. And if you don't yield to him, then he's going to lovingly hurt you for the rest of your life until you yield. I see so many people, clients, parties to litigation, people I just deal with in the world, who have a life of fractured relationships and bad decision-making and just horrible things happening to them, and they get to a point in their life and they're like, why is God doing this to me? And it's never a focus on themselves. It's always a focus on why doesn't God bless me, despite the fact I've never surrendered to what God wants me to do. For a non-believer, this isn't an issue. For a believer, this is the defining test for the quality of your life. Are you living a life surrendered? Are you living a life doing what you want to do where God is going to lovingly hurt you for the rest of your life? And I use that phrase with all biblical precision, lovingly hurt you, because that's exactly what he did with Jacob. He touched his hip and he dislocated it and he walked with the limp for the rest of his life. Most of you have got great hips. I've only known one person in my life that had a really messed up hip, and I realized how debilitating it is. If you have, if you experience what Jacob has experienced here, you are never the same as long as you live. This hasn't happened to an athlete in the last couple of years that I recall, but this is exactly what happened to football player, baseball player Bo Jackson regarded as one of the greatest athletes of the 80s and early 90s, and he had a similar type injury to what this describes Jake happened. <laughs> Football career over, baseball career over, Bo is no longer Bo doing commercials for Nike, right, which he was long before Jordan and the other superstars. It was all about Bo Jackson. He has this hip injury. Bo walks with a limp for the rest of his life. So like them, like Bo, like us, if God lovingly hurts you, you're going to limp for the rest of your life. Sin, you're going to limp after the sin. Uh, bad decision making, you're going to limp. But that limp is intended to be a loving reminder that I'm walking with the limp because he loved me enough to draw me back closer to him. It is a profound, profound story of God and his love is going to get us to surrender one way or the other. <coughs> Great little New Testament parallel I wrote down in your outline, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is intended to remind us of this. Paul says, in quoting what God told him, what Jesus told him directly, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. This is Paul talking again, so that Christ may be, uh, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If Paul is preaching on Jake. Paul says at the end of this sentence, for when I'm limping, therefore I'm strong. When I'm limping, therefore I'm fast. 
because at that point when you're limping and you're no longer the super athlete you used to be, it's 0% you and 100% God, and that's what God wanted all along. You were just too stubborn, too foolish, too self-centered to realize it, so he had to lovingly hurt you to get you to where he wanted you to go. So Paul's got the exact same perspective. All right, let me end with something that blew my mind. And I didn't know how to put it on your outline, so I just gave you an extra sentence or two. And that is some amazing research on the human brain as it relates to this place. Because you notice in the story where it says in verse 36, Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face. So Peniel, historically, as a name, means place of God's face. Okay, that's what it means. You could say place where God is or place of God's face. That's Peniel in Hebrew. Okay, that term got carried over into the Renaissance. And when they started studying the human body and started studying the human brain, they gave a part of the human brain the same name. There's a slightly different spelling because the name was given by a Frenchman, so some of the vowels are switched, but etymologically, the word study is this. I've studied it, okay? The pineal gland is a tiny gland at the top of the spine that controls the melatonin that enables you to sleep. It controls the serotonin that impacts your outlook on life. Okay? It is the only gland in the human body that is reactive to light. That's important. It triggers melatonin, it triggers serotonin when it's exposed to light. So that's why in Alaska and Siberia in the dead of winter, they turn on UV lights because they've got to artificially stimulate this gland. If not, it makes you depressed like a serotonin and it messes up your sleep like a melatonin. That's why going out on a sunny day makes you happy and makes you sleep well. It cranks up your melatonin. It cranks up your serotonin. That's why when it rains for four days, you feel depressed and you want to crawl in bed and go to sleep because your sleep cycle gets messed up because there's not the right balance of melatonin, not the right balance of serotonin. So as the only thing that impacts light, it's really, really, really important. Uh, neat little study. And this is what blew my mind, and here's why I'm telling it to you, not just that they named this. Well, actually, let me give you a little background. Back in the Renaissance, when they started studying parts of the human brain, one of the greatest questions for scientists is, where is our consciousness? Where is our soul? People wanted to know, in the brain, where does my consciousness reside? They couldn't figure it out any more back then than they could today, but their guess was this little gland. And in antiquity, they called this the third eye. The scientific medical literature back two, three hundred years ago described this as the third eye as the seat of consciousness. 
there's a whole bunch of people today that assume that it may be, or if they're agnostic, assume that it's not, and medically we just can't tell. Consciousness is what consciousness is, and we can't wrap our brains around it, which is a great reason not to believe in evolution, because you can't explain consciousness. Nevertheless, the reason I'm telling you this story, two years ago, Johns Hopkins University, which has one of the greatest brain centers in the world, decided to do some studies to see what they could do to trigger that gland besides light. They tried chemicals, they tried athletic events, they tried all kinds of stimuli to the body and the brain. What would make this thing trigger more serotonin and more melatonin without giving you those chemicals directly? And what shocked them is they discovered reading a Bible caused that gland to trigger. So the agnostics doing the study panicked. And they said, try a Koran. Nothing. Try the writings of Hindu. Nothing. Try the writings of Confucius. Nothing. Try the Book of Mormon. Nothing. Give another Bible. Spike. Cross-reference to prove it. Matthew 6.22, the lamp of the body is the eye. It follows that if your eye is clear, the whole body will be filled with light. Matthew 6.22, it is not a poor choice of words when God describes himself in the Old Testament as light. Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I am the light of the world. Triggers the pineal, where you see God face to face. I thought that was pretty cool. All right. He sees God one more time. We're not done. Uh, Christ in our blessings. This is the end of his life. He meets Esau. Esau doesn't try to kill him. He's got a good family relationship again. Things are restored. He goes to Bethel, that place where he started out 20 years ago with his head on a rock for a pillow. And uh, God says, go there. And they get there, and there's all kinds of family reunion, happiness going on. And then look down at verse 9, chapter 35 of Genesis Verse 9, he goes to Padanaram. God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padanaram. I guess he's, in, he's still in Bethel here. And he blessed him. It says, Yahweh said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but Israel will be your name. So he named him Israel, and God also said to him, I am El Shaddai. Your translation is, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, it says, I am El Shaddai. First time Jake has heard this word. God says, be fruitful and multiply. A nation indeed, an assembly of nations has come from you, and kings will descend from you. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to the descendants after you. Now, couple of things here. 
Number one, his name. God says, I don't care who you used to be, you've got a new name. He was Jacob Deceiver, he becomes Israel, which is wrestles with God. He's got a new name. The parallel for us is the book of Revelation says me and you have got other names. I'm dying to know what mine is. I kind of like Chris. I'm kind of used to it after five plus decades. But God's got another one. And he's got another one for you too. And I'm kind of hoping it's not something I don't like. But if God gave it to me, I'm going to like it. The point is... When God owns you and changes you, you get a new name. And the point of this story is we can relate to Jake because we too have wrestled with him and we too have new names. God gave him an early blessing by telling him what his name is. The book of Revelation says we learn our names when we get to heaven and see what's written in the book next to our earthly name. But we will get a new name. And so there's a great parallel between us and Jake here. Number two, El Shaddai. El Shaddai in a literal translation means God of the wilderness. And it is a great, a great name here because God comes to him at the end of his struggles and basically says, I am the God of the wilderness. As Jake looked back on his life at this point, it's a wilderness experience. It was a childhood and, and young adulthood of total dysfunctionality and pathological lies. Is an adulthood of treachery being inflicted on him where he had to get reshaped. It's anxiety, depression, and fear resulting in wrestling with the creator of the universe. And then he limps for the rest of his life and God comes to him at the end and he says, I am the God of your wilderness. I'm not just the God of the mountaintop. I'm not just the God of Abraham and Isaac up on top of that mountain outside of Jerusalem. I'm not just the God of Noah. right? I'm not just the God of the really big stuff. I'm the God of the wilderness. The other cool connotation, neat connotation of El Shaddai is the historic Jewish interpretation of the consonants without the vowels. In other words, in, in Hebrew, as, as I've taught most of you, the language historically has no vowels. You put the consonants together, and then as you add a vowel sound, that changes the context, right? So one word shifts based on which vowels I add to it. It's just like in English, cat and cot, right? A cat is radically different than a cot you sleep on, right? The difference is one vowel. Same thing in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the consonants for El Shaddai, when you take the vowels out, and I just have the con con uh, consonants, the number one translation is the English word enough, E-N-O-U-G-H. So the parallel in Jewish theology is El Shaddai, consonants, equal enough. What a perfect parallel with the God of the wilderness. When you are in a wilderness, either of your own creation or your fallen human state because we get sick 
and we get into bad relationships and we lose our money and everything else we do that's bad, God says, I am enough. El Shaddai equals enough. Those are what the consonants equal. So it's not just the God of the wilderness. It's the God who is enough. And he's even there in our time of wilderness. Pretty cool stuff, huh? That's why I relate to Jake. I have wrestled with God. God has knocked huge boulders off of me to fix me. And I know that if we had time to go around the room, you guys could tell me all your Jacob experiences. I love this guy. I wish we had weeks to spend on him, but we'd be talking about stuff other than Christ in the Old Testament, so I'm not going to do it. Next week, for those of you who are here, we're going to do Joseph. Joseph is the greatest picture of Jesus Christ that exists anywhere in the Old Testament. What's the last blank? Yeah. Oh, sorry, last blank. Oh, yeah, 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 thank you. I skipped over it. God's promises to others are only true when you accept them. Accept them. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Was the final point on Jake. Jake had to say he's not the God of daddy and granddaddy. He's my God. And God's promises to Abraham get repeated not only in the wrestling with God, they get repeated at the very end at Bethel when God says, I'm going to give you this blessing. So the promises are only true when we accept them for us. Okay? Good stuff. Next week, Joseph, and we'll keep on going. Uh, quick questions. 60 seconds. Anybody? Awesome. On the 4th of July, I worried nobody would be here. I'm so happy you guys are here. So enjoy the rest of your long holiday weekend. I don't have to work on Monday or Tuesday, so uh, I'm picking up Natalie at the airport, who's been visiting her ill father, uh, who's still very ill but stable, uh, and we get to go to the country for the first time in many, many, many months. So we're very happy about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, taking care of us, for loving us, for uh, being with us, and for just giving us lessons like this that remind us that when we struggle, it's because of our own foolishness and that you could crush us, but you lovingly just hold us like we hold kids who are screaming and flailing around, and then you lovingly discipline us until we change and become the children that you want us to be. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know when you're doing that, that you'd give us the acceptance to deal with those situations when they occur, and the discernment to be able to use it and tell it to everybody around us that it become our testimony and our point of transformation, our point of worship. We love you for it. We're in awe because of what you've done to teach us these things, and we long to be with you again. Hold us tight until we are together next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.